Would you open God's precious holy word to John chapter 5? Every time we study a passage, we should be reminded of how John, how the Holy Spirit through John tells us that he writes his gospel so that we might believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we might have life in his name. I hope to always precede each message in John because there's something in every passage designed to grip the heart of the unbeliever. The activity of the Holy Spirit working through the word touches those whom God would call. If it stirs your heart and you've never been saved, God is calling. The power of the word, the work of the Holy Spirit. John's account of, of the ministry of Christ is so beautiful. Now we've come really in John 5, it's a new section, John 5, 6, and 7, and it's the part where John is telling us that the ministry of Jesus sort of bounces back and forth between Galilee and Judea. So we get right into verse one. After these things, that is to say, after the Galilee, Galilee things, what he has been doing in Galilee, after these things, there was a feast of the Jews. Doesn't say what it was. At the beginning of the gospel, At the beginning of the ministry of Christ, Christ spends about a year in Judea. Then he spends 16 months in Galilee, then back to Judea to finish it all up and to offer himself on the cross of Calvary. We don't know what feast it was, but we do know that the law required Men, men over the age of 30, I, I think, men over the age of 30 to go three times to, to attend three feasts a year probably was one of those three. There was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. There was a pool by the sheep gate called Bethesda. Bethesda. In the Hebrew, that means, that means the house of of mercy. Bethesda in Hebrew having five porches. So that's a big pool. It has five porticos. It's it's there are columns there, so it's a it's a large place. There are five places instead of just one where people could gather. So it's a big place. It's well known. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, in the recent era it, it has been uncovered. Archaeologists have uncovered it and even have discovered the water. It's a spring-fed pool. More about that in just a minute. 
In these porticos, in these porches, were lying a multitude of those ailing, blind, lame, and paralyzed. The Bible teaches us that man has three parts to his existence. One, of course, is his flesh, his body. The other is the spirit that God gives. God, gave, God gives us, God gave the breath. It's the breath of life, the spirit of God. And when those two come together, a third part appears, is made, and it is the soul of a man. The book of Hebrews teaches us that the spirit and the soul are not the same thing and that the word of God is so powerful it can separate the soul from the spirit. Sometimes the soul, which, is, which contains within it the seed of emotion, it also contains within it our desire to be reasonable and rational and, and, logic and uh, logical and so forth. The soul sometimes can lead us and sin against us and cause us to actually oppose spiritual things. Simply put, the spirit is that part that, can, that recognizes God. The soul gives us our awareness of others socially, and then the flesh gives us our awareness of ourselves. J. Vernon McGee called man a, a three-story house. And he says, if the man has his house properly built, his bottom level is the kitchen. His middle level is the library, but his top level is the chapel. And that's where we hope and strive to live is in the spiritual realm of life. To understand more and more the importance of our spirit. Now I'm saying all that to say this. Even among the Jews, there was superstition. People get superstitious. And they just have this innate innate uh, characteristic that blindly accepts tradition and superstition as reality. Step on a crack, break your mother's back. I don't know for how long in my life I tried to avoid stepping on cracks. Black cat, broken mirror, rabbit's foot. People get super, oh, hey, the horoscope. Chinese cookies. <laughs> Superstitious. 
I got to read this. Let me see what this says. Ooh, going to be a good day. <laughs> see, you just, you just throw all that away. This story is about a guy, about a bunch of people who were superstitious. Their superstition was also anchored to a counterfeit religion, Judaism. Judaism was false. Christ corrected it. We cannot be saved by our works. There is no such thing as self-righteousness. There is no self who is righteous except for God the Son who accommodated himself to human flesh so that he could die for his own. So here are these people anchored to superstition and connected to a counterfeit religion. All right, so this is called the pool of mercy. All these people came. When the Holy Spirit says there was a multitude, that means that there was a bunch of people all over, all kinds of ailments and problems. Now, Pastor Charles doesn't just fall asleep when he's had too much NyQuil or something sitting at his desk. Spends a great deal of time, in the case of the New Testament, comparing and contrasting the manuscripts. In the New Testament, for example, the Gospel of John, either in whole or in part, is found in 22 manuscripts, and that's more than any other New Testament book. Think about that. Gospel John. So when one, when one compares the manuscripts because you want to be correct, it, it's called textual criticism, but it is not that you're being critical of the Bible. It is that you are critically comparing so that you can be as correct as possible. The professors in my seminary a long time ago convinced me that in the New Testament, you don't have that much problem in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, it's not really a problem, it's just, it just requires study. In the New Testament, one should carefully examine the translation based on ancient texts. And my seminary taught that if you're going to exegete, my daddy would say, if you do, you'll clean it up. If you're going to exegete, you're going to want to bring exegesis from the, from the oldest manuscript. Now, there are nearly 6,000 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament that are still 
that one can study. I mean, I'm not going to run all over the world and study them, but I happen to have books where these guys show them to you, you know. There are, for example, there are the papyrus manuscripts, there are the lectionaries, there are the uncials and the minuscules and all that kind of stuff. The difference comes from the material on which the original was written, the type of ink that was used, and I guess the modern vernacular would be the font that they used. What does it look like? It's very, very easy to determine which are the oldest manuscripts. I'm laying all this foundation, and I do this from time to time because I don't want you to think that I'm taking liberty with the Word of God. Quite the opposite. There is a portion of verse 3 and all of verse 4 that is simply not in the oldest manuscripts. Shown to have been added by a scribe later on, much later on than the early manuscripts, simply to explain that there was a superstition that was popular in this day. Now we can look at that. I have it in yellow up there. Um, you know, uh, they were awaiting the water moving uh, because an angel at a certain time descended into the pool and stirred the water and uh, therefore, uh, the first one who entered after the stirring of the water was made well from whatever he was held, by whatever disease he was held at the time. So that's the superstition. And I'm telling you, that's not in the earliest manuscript, but it's okay to look at it. It gives us a little explanation from something that happened. But the Holy Spirit would not teach us a superstition. That's why I want to be sure that there's an understanding that there is a superstition that's thrown in there by some later scribe, obviously because it's not in the earliest manuscripts, but it kind of gives us an idea why all these people were packed into those five porches at this pool. In its original text, the holy, blessed word of God is absolutely perfect and infallible, inerrant. It's irrevocable. It's irreversible. It's unstoppable. And the Lord warns us at the end of the book, don't take away from it and don't add to it. And every time I study, I tremble to remember what the Lord has said. So... I hope I've defended my position appropriately. Meanwhile, back at the pool. <laughs> now a certain man, man, I'll tell you what, I'm studying my Bible and I'm looking at that Greek. Tis anthropos, a certain man. Now we just established the fact that these five porches were filled with people, people on top of people. They're all over the place. And they're moaning and ailing and hurting. And they're waiting to hear this when the, when the springs of the deep gurgle forth. It's a, it's a natural phenomenon. It's not really a spooky thing at all. 
But when they hear that regurgitation of water boiling up and freshening the pool, the belief was the first guy in there got healed of whatever ailed him. That was their superstition. Of all these people, all of them everywhere, moaning, hurting, ailing, they were paralyzed, they were blind, all, everything you can think of. There was a certain man. Now, this is the sovereign act of God. A certain man. This wasn't happenstance. Just like the woman at the well. This man didn't know it, but he had a divine appointment with God in the flesh. A certain man was there. Being himself or himself, he himself, it's, it's one of those emphatic pronouns, which means that he was there and he is the one who had been infirmed for 38 years. That's a long time. He probably, he, the, the Bible doesn't say this, but that, that we would be told that he and he alone had been there for 38 years would tell us that he might be the one who'd been there longer than anybody. He was physically emaciated and wasted. A certain man. In comes Jesus. Having seen him. Now look at this. And having known that he had already been there a long time. This guy had a chapter in the history of the pool of Bethesda to himself. Most people who had been infirmed would have died before 38 years had passed. This guy, he, he, holds, he holds the trophy. So everybody knew about this guy. 38 years. They all knew that this guy was going to be there. He was there. If something happens to this guy, because everybody knew it and everybody knew that he wouldn't, he wouldn't fake ailment or infirmity for 38 years, it wasn't possible. Then everybody knew if something happens to this guy, it's for real. It's not just some, you know, sleight of hand or whatever. Jesus focuses on him. All the people who are there, Jesus knew he'd been there a long time. Already knew it. And he said to him, do you desire to become well? Do you want to be complete? The word, the word up here, yes, means to be made normal. This, this guy, exactly what his ailment is or was, is not described. But we know that for 38 years, 
physically, he has been ruined. It isn't just, it isn't, it's weakness everywhere. He can't, he can't function. Do you desire to become well? Now, that seems like a strange question to ask this fellow. The ailing one answered him, sir, I have no man that when the water has stirred that he might put me into the pool in which I'm now going, but then another descends before me. Now this is his way of saying, what kind of question is that? I've been here for 38 years and I have wanted somebody to pick me up and run to the bubbling water whenever it starts to bubble. But I don't have anybody. And I'll begin to roll and pull and maybe somebody will help me, but somebody beats me to it all the time. I'm never the first one there. There's always somebody who goes in ahead of me. 38 years. Jesus said to him, gives him three commands. Arise. That's impossible. Arise. Take up your mat and walk. 38 years. Pathetic. Every time the water bubbles, stirs, moves, he tries his best to rake and scrape and crawl and roll and somebody might help him. Maybe. But others always beat him to the water. 38 years. It's maddening to think about it. This is his life. Arise, take up your mat, and walk. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. And immediately, now there's nothing here that says the man had faith in Christ. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. This is a miracle that John includes that would produce a deeper part of the narrative so that people reading the gospel might believe. There's no indication that this man ever became a believer. As a matter of fact, there's indication that he was otherwise. We'll see that. And he took up his mat. Immediately the man was made well. He was, there's that word. He was made well. Made well immediately. Yes, he was made normal. Whole. Well, immediately. Arms that never had strength for 38 years 
received strength. Legs that had never been able to work now were strong and were able to move. The man could move his, the, the, the muscles in his back and he could stand up. He could do what normal people do. And he did what Jesus told him to do. He took up his mat and he began to walk. But then here's this very important insertion. Now it was on the Sabbath. It was on that Sabbath day. In other words, it's that Sabbath day that was a Sabbath day that was in, in, in the days of that feast, whatever the feast was. So the, the city would have been crowded with Jews. It was one of those required feasts. People were scared of the Pharisees. The Pharisees could stir up a crowd against you if they wanted to. It was on that Sabbath day. Okay, so immediately began to walk. Here was the deal. He took up his mat. You're not supposed to bear a load on the Sabbath. He took up his mat and began to walk. And it was on that Sabbath day. Therefore, the Jews were saying, they all, oh, the guy picked up a mat. Doesn't matter that he'd been there for 38 years wanting to roll into that water. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter that he's up walking around and the whole place could could applaud the fact that he had never had that kind of health before. Doesn't matter that all of his past life has been erased and he is a new man physically. Doesn't matter to the Jews. This is counterfeit religion for you. Counterfeit religion wants to control you. Wants to harass you. Wants to intimidate you. With with traditions and codes of behavior that are not biblical. They're not scriptural. And this is where Judaism had come in the time of Christ. They had elevated the traditions of men above the very word of God, the law of God. The Jews were saying to the one having been healed, it's Sabbath. It's not law for you to take up your mat. We just might pick up rocks and stone you to death. <laughs> you, just, you just got well in time to start running. Let's see how fast you can run. Then the guy answered them. The one having made me well, he said to me, take up your mat and walk. 38 years, I haven't been able to do anything. In one instant. This guy tells me to arise and take up my bed and walk. And when I stood up and I felt like a new man, it just seemed like I ought to do what the guy said do. Take up my mat and walk. So they asked him, who is the man having said to you, take up and walk? Now, what do you think they should have done? Well, maybe they should have 
Maybe they should have turned to the rest of the people there who were ailing and maybe they should have said, we need to find this guy for you people. We need to help all. No, that's not what they said. They're not interested in helping people. They're interested in keeping people in subjection. Forcing them to meagerly respond to intimidation. Counterfeit religion. Who is the man having said this to you? Now the one having been healed knew not who it was. For Jesus had moved away, a crowd being in the place. Let me tell you this. Here in this portion of chapter 5 in John's gospel is where the opposition to Jesus begins. It will move on through 5, 6, and 7 as a matter of, well, we'll talk about it when we get to the next slide. After these things, it's, I'm going to tell you. Jesus, to present the truth of God, must attack and dismantle the counterfeit religion of man. Jesus came knowing that the Jewish leaders were there. He knew who the man was that had been there the longest, who would be recognized as someone in whose life a miracle had happened. He he knew this. He knew it was on the Sabbath and he knew he was going to stir up the opposition. And he did. After these things, Jesus found him in the temple. Now, the law required this, a person who is healed to go and present himself to the priest and do certain things. Well, Jesus knew he'd be there. Jesus found him in the temple. Now, the word to find, it means he was looking for him. He didn't just bump into him. And said to him, behold, three things. You have been made well. There's that word again, normal. Whole. Number two, sin no more. Number three, that something worse doesn't happen to you. Now, what do we learn here in the language? This man had become emaciated in his life because he lived the first portion of his life as a grievous sinner and it had a negative effect on his physical life. Jesus has to follow up. This is again from the omniscience of God the Son. And Jesus is saying, look, the grievous sin that you had joined yourself to early in your life caused you to become emaciated, had destroyed you physically. Doesn't say what it was. It destroyed you physically. You have a new life, a new, you have a new start physically. Henceforth, sin no more. So that nothing worse 
will happen to you. You're 38 years older than you were when this first came on you. You're a much older person now. You get back into that kind of thing. And it'll come upon you worse than it was before. That's what Jesus is saying to him. Jesus, unlike the Jewish leaders, Jesus, God in the flesh, God is a compassionate God. He is a merciful God. And so Jesus comes compassionately and mercifully as a polar opposite of the Jewish leaders. They didn't have any compassion or mercy on this guy. They wouldn't say, well, you look real good standing up, but let me tell you something, you broke the law. That's well, terrible. This is not God's way, and God is there to tell them so. You've been made well. You've been made normal. You've been made whole. Sin no more. That something worse doesn't happen to you. Now, the guy's going to show his true colors. The man went away and told the Jews that Jesus, oh, please, I found the guy who made me well. Jesus, that guy. Jesus was the one having made him well. And because of this, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. The persecution, let me go back up here to the word, <coughs> to the little phrase, were persecuting. Uh, Adilcom. It's in the imperfect active. Let me tell you what that means. In the imperfect active means they kept doing it until they accomplished what they wanted to accomplish. In the imperfect, that's what it means. And then the active means that they were the ones, they were the subjects that were acting out what the verb is describing. <coughs> were persecuting. They would not stop <coughs> until Jesus was dead. Imperfect, active. <coughs> and because of this, Jews were person. Now that word adilkum means that they were hatefully pursuing him with hostility constantly. Because of these things that he was doing on the Sabbath they kept after him until they killed him. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Counterfeit religion will do its best to intimidate us away from Jesus.
Isn't it interesting? How the gospel of Jesus Christ is so hated in the world. I spoke last week of this, whatever it is, Abrahamic village or something that has all these so-called leaders of various faiths, which includes the Pope and some leader of Islam and some leader of Hinduism and some leader of Judaism. And they're building this village that's going to have these houses, so-called houses of worship and prayer so that all can come as being under one God and not being intimidating toward others or prejudiced in any way or intolerant of each other. Well, of course, and the devil knows this, a, a true Christian can't agree with that. The greatest love we can extend to this world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. To extend the love of God through Christ to people who hate us, knowing full well in extending the gospel that if these people are saved, they might very well live right next door to us in heaven. What kind of hatred is that? Warning other people to know the glory of Christ like we know it, eternal life. Sins forgiven forever. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. May I say to you, if you are here and you've never come to Christ by faith, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And He came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And if you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In just a moment, I'll ask everyone to prayerfully stand. And in the act of standing, if you would come to Christ today and you want to come to me publicly and let me pray with you, you can do that. Or... If in exiting the service today, you want to go to one of the rooms where our deacons are, they'll pray with you. Maybe you're here, God leads you into the fellowship and membership of this church. You're invited to come forward during this time or to go and express your desires to the deacons and their wives who are there in those rooms waiting for you. This is God's time with us. So as we feel the tug of the Holy Spirit and hear the call of God in the only way that we can do it, it is my prayer that you'll come today. Father God in heaven, bless this invitation and use it for your glory in Christ's name. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Would you just prayerfully stand all over this room? While she plays this song, you may want to respond now. You may want to respond as you leave and speak to the deacons and their wives. But the invitation is for you if God's dealing with you today.